and recognize our graduates, our, uh, our high school graduates, and, and send them off kind of with one final word of encouragement. Uh, these guys have all had the opportunity to hear me um, once, sometimes twice a week, and this is one of the last times that you might regularly get to, to hear me. And, and so I like to take this opportunity to give one final um, kind of send-off encouragement. Oh, yeah, thank you, Children's Church. I always forget that one. Children's Church, we're going to go ahead and dismiss you before we get started. Um, so it's ages four through first grade. And go ahead, follow Miss Polly out the north door. Thank you, Nathan. So, and I hope, even though I've been having our high school graduates in my mind as I've been pre- preparing for this morning, I think that um, it's just a cool reminder that when we look to God's word for direction, regardless of where the focus is, that we all can benefit from hearing from that. We all can be challenged um, by hearing God's word. And so this, this particular class of graduates is uh, somewhat of a special class or a, uh, a milestone class for me, because you guys um, were the first class I've seen all the way through high school. Um, which is kind of cool. Not, not just my first class to ever see through high school here at Briam, but ever in my career. You guys are the first group. And so again, um, in, in a way, you are a, a, a special class in that, in that way. Um, I'm going to very much miss having you guys in, in youth group. Um, and so as I've been thinking about this service uh, and kind of that fact over the ma- past month or two, uh, as I look through scripture, um, waiting for God to put something on my heart that um, would be a good encouragement for our graduates today, I've found myself relating with the Apostle Paul in kind of a new way. Um, we think of Paul as, again, this incredible church leader who, if we're going on a book-by-book basis, wrote um, more books in the New Testament than, than any other author. Um, we're familiar with his story. We know that he was named Saul before. Um, he, he, we know about his road, or his uh, conversion, rather, on the road to Damascus. We know about his various missionary journeys throughout the Roman world. Um, and we get a window into his relationships with these various churches uh, through all of the letters that Paul wrote that, again, now are contained in the New Testament. Um, and a lot of times there's some tough love in those letters. He isn't always writing to say, you guys are doing a bang-up job. There, there are times when, when he's addressing issues. But one thing is evident, even in those moments, is that Paul has uh, an intense love and an intense care for, for those churches that, um, that he's writing to and that he's visited. But when you, when you think about his missionary journeys... And again, the numerous churches that he visited during those, um, during those journeys, it's easy for us to miss the fact that Paul's time with each of these churches, like actually being physically there and with them, was extremely limited. It was extremely limited. Most of Paul's visits probably um, were in the neighborhood of weeks or months. Paul wasn't the senior pastor of the Corinthian church for 25 years. His physical time with them was very limited. And I, I can relate to that as, as a youth pastor. That in my position, what I do, the, way, the people that I minister to, my, my time with you guys is inherently limited. Um, and so again, as I've just been reading through a lot of Paul's letters, I, I, that just struck me as a, as a new way um, in which I can relate to him. Um, and so kind of that thought process led me to saying, okay, maybe... 
Maybe there's an encouragement in one of Paul's letters that, um, that would fit today as we, as we send off our graduates. So we're going to be taking a look today um, at a passage from Philippians 3. We're going to be in Philippians 3, verses 10, um, and we're going to sneak into chapter 4, verse 1 a little bit. So let me, uh, let me pray for us, and then we'll read through our passage for today and, and go back and make some observations. And so God, I do thank you for this morning um, and for uh, our graduates. Lord, and, and I, I pray for this time and this encouragement that we can find in your word. Uh, I pray that all might benefit. You would challenge us with it and remind us of um, the incredible promise found in Christ. And so we ask for your Holy Spirit to guide us today as we look into uh, your word. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. So again, I'm going to read through this all, and then we'll, we'll go back and, and make some observations um, afterward. And starting in verse 10, Paul says, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us then who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters, and just, as you, uh, and just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For as I have often told you before and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies to the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. And so in the, in the verses preceding this passage, again, we're, we're picking up in the middle of a chapter, in the middle of a book here. And in the passages preceding, um, preceding today's passage, Paul is, is addressing kind of this issue of works salvation, if you will. Uh, he talks about his own history as a Pharisee who placed his faith in following the law. This belief that following a set of rules and traditions could make one right with God. And he also addresses a false teaching that had become common in the early church, that being um, that the belief and faith in Jesus Christ alone was not enough, again, to make one right with God, that you needed to place your faith in Jesus and then add something to that in order to really be right with God. A lot of times what was being preached was you need to place your faith in Jesus and you need to be circumcised, to be, um, become like God's chosen people, the, the Jews. And this group was called the, the Judaizers. And so he's, he spent the last three paragraphs or so kind of debunking that, um, that belief and making it clear again that salvation is found in faith in Christ alone. And so we pick up with Paul's conclusion to that thought in verse 10. And, and again, his encouragement to the Philippian church to continue living according to the truth, like the actual truth 
found in Jesus Christ. And so he says, I want to know Christ. That's how he starts. It seems like such a simple, basic concept. Basic statement. But the truth is that knowledge of Christ is the most important knowledge that a person can possess. And Paul recognizes that there's an incredible power in knowing Jesus. It's not just important, but there's a power in it, in what he has done for us. I want to know Christ. He has to know the power of his resurrection. And not only does Paul advocate the value of knowing Jesus, but also in following his example and being like him. He has to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in death. And so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Paul is advocating this incredible value in knowing Jesus and striving to be like him. Even even if being like him results in a measure of suffering while we're on earth. He's not saying participation in the easy life that comes along, you know, that Jesus lived. He didn't live an easy life. It's his participation in his sufferings and becoming like him in his death so that somehow can attain the resurrection from the dead. Because when we truly know Jesus, when we place our faith in him, when we allow that faith to influence our actions, our values, our decisions, when we allow him to transform our lives, and even when, because of that, we encounter various trials, there's still that incredible promise found in the resurrection. And that incredible truth, the promise of the resurrection, the promise of eternity with God is the motivation behind continuing to strive day in and day out to live life that is in tune with the life that Christ lived while he was on earth. But Paul makes it clear in verse 12 that he doesn't consider his progress towards that having been complete. It's not that I've already attained to this or I've already arrived at my goal. Sometimes it's easy for us to feel like we've reached the apex of something in life. That, that it's easy for us to sometimes feel like, man, I've finally arrived. I've, I've run into that um, conclusion, if you will, uh, many times in a very physical way on the hiking trail. Um, and as I was thinking about this, um, one particular time sticks out in my mind. It happened when I was seven or eight years old on a trip to Colorado. Here's some pictures. We have some children's pictures from our graduates. So I wanted you to feel like you're not alone in having some pictures of you as a kid. Um, but one particular time of, of this type of realization was on this particular hike when I was seven or eight years old um, on a trip to Colorado. We arrived at the trailhead to um, a... Uh, a trail called Piney Lake. We were going to go to a place called Piney Lake, and there was this promise that at the end there was going to be this incredible lake with these great views of the mountains. We could sit by the lake, we could have lunch, and it was going to be awesome. I was really looking forward to that. Um, And so we arrived at the trailhead, and this particular trailhead sat at the bottom of a pretty steep incline. And we arrived, we got out of the car, I looked up, and I could see the top of the mountain. I could see where we were going, and it wasn't that far. I said, oh, that's, that trail's like two, three hundred yards. This is going to be great. And so while my mom and dad were uh, getting lunch ready and getting our backpacks all packed up, I decided, well, I'll get a head start and I'll reach the top 
before they even get started. So I start trotting up there, a pretty good clip. Five or six minutes later, I'm starting to huff and puff pretty good, but that was okay because I was almost near the top. And so I round the top of the mountain expecting again to discover this incredible mountain lake. And if you're not reading between the lines quite yet, um, my joy and my um, excitement about this quickly turned to dismay. I had not thought to ask as we were driving, um, so how long is this hike? So I reached the top of the mountain, realizing then that I was about 300 yards into a 10-mile hike. I had not reached my goal. Um, and Paul, so Paul is giving a warning in this passage about making that kind of mistake as we seek to follow Jesus on the path to that promise, that promise again of the resurrection, that promise of eternal life with God. But Paul, one of the fathers of the early church, a person that we set up as an example, uh, did not consider himself to have arrived at his goal yet. Instead, he continues to strive for it, to press on all the while keeping his mind on just what is ahead. In this forward thinking that Paul is talking about, uh, it's incredibly important. Because when we focus on what's ahead, when we focus on the obstacles that are still yet to come, when we focus again on the incredible goal at the end, that keeps us on track. But if we focus too much on our past accomplishments and successes and the way we've already grown, that actually has a way of getting us off track. It can tempt us to to start slowing down, to feel like I've done enough, or I can take a break. I think that a track race actually illustrates this concept really well. And um, Luckily, one of our graduates just finished his track season, right, Evan? Yes. Um, And so one of your events, I think, was 300-meter hurdles. I see that. So I want to ask you a question, Evan. It's the last, last audience participation for you. What would happen if 100 meters into your 300-meter hurdle, you started looking back at the race you'd already run and the hurdles you've already jumped? That's a bad idea. Because you know what? The next hurdle, probably not going to go so well. You probably lose some momentum. You might even start veering the wrong direction. You might hit the person's hurdle in the lane next to you. Because keeping your eyes on the race still to come is so much more important than dwelling on the race you've already completed, right? That's just true in any race. Um, But one more question. Does not dwelling on those hurdles that you've already jumped make them any less real or any less important to the race as a whole? No. That's an easy one. Lobbing you softballs here. (laughs) No, it doesn't. Those things are still important. You have to run the first 100 meters to run the second 200 meters, last 200 meters. And that's that's the idea that Paul is getting at here. He's not trying to minimize the milestones of our faith. That's not what he's trying to do. Instead, he wants us to be constantly mindful that there's still some race to run. And you know what? What lies at the finish line at the end of the race is so much better and, again, so much more valuable than any of the steps along the way. 
And so that's why Paul says that he forgets what's behind and strains towards what's ahead. And again, graduates, there's a lot yet ahead for all of you. And Paul goes on to say that having that forward-thinking mindset is a sign of maturity. When we're immature, whether in age or in faith, looking ahead and staying on track is a huge challenge. Let me tell you, when I reached the top of the mountain in Colorado, I did not want to think about the 9.9 miles still left ahead. I was fine having lunch right there. (laughs) I didn't care that the mountain lake was still ahead. I just wanted to think about how hard I'd worked to make it up that first slope. And I was more focused on the car that I could still see at the bottom than I was on the mountain lake 9.9 miles on. Because I was not mature at that age. But with maturity comes the ability to keep our minds focused on the end goal. Again, whether we're talking about just maturity in age, just keeping your eyes focused on on what's ahead in life, or whether we're talking about spiritual maturity, keeping our eyes focused on that ultimate goal. You graduates are starting to formulate ideas for career goals when you move into the next stage of life right now. Let me tell you, again, I've known you all the way through high school, you are each more prepared to make those decisions and to pursue those things now than you were when I first met you because you're more mature. And yes, I've seen you grow in in general maturity, those abilities to make those decisions, but I've also seen each of you grow in areas of your faith, mature in areas of your faith. And And so I believe you can take Paul's words here at face value. So all of us then who are mature should take such a view of things. This idea of having a forward thinking mindset. And again, the realization that salvation is found in Christ alone and that with that in mind, we must continue to strive towards that incredible promise by not just knowing of Christ, but being like Christ and striving towards that. And it's important to note here that that maturity doesn't mean that you have everything figured out. He's using the word maturity here and not perfection. There were apparently some in the Philippian church that took a different view on certain things. But Paul encourages even those with the promise that God will make those things clear. But regardless of whether or not there were some points of dissent within the church, Paul gives the encouragement to stand strong in the ways that God has already grown them. He encourages them not to go back and run part of the race again. Let us live up to what we've already attained. Not only are we supposed to be forward-thinking, we're supposed to be forward-moving as well and not walking backwards in our faith. And in verses 17 through 20, Paul talks about some of the challenges that present themselves as we try to remain both forward-thinking and forward-moving. And these verses are are kind of a sandwich of, of a problem in the middle and a couple of solutions to that problem. If we jump ahead to verses 18 and 19, we see Paul um, warning of the pressures of the world around us. 
says, For I have often told you before, and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. Much like the Philippians living in Roman culture, which, if followed to the T, was not a path. If you, if you adapted to the Roman culture and followed that to the T, that was not a path in line with following Christ. And similar to that, we live in a culture that, again, one followed to the T does not lead us down a path that follows Christ. And Paul says that their minds are constantly focused on earthly things. Their mind is set on earthly things. And when Paul says earthly things, he's not talking about everyday life. He's not talking about um, going to work or buying groceries or paying bills or making friends or doing things like that. That's not what he's, what he's talking about with earthly things. Um, Frank Thielman was a, an author that I was reading a book about this passage in Philippians, and I think that he puts it better than I can. He says, earthly things are not practical affairs, are not the practical affairs of everyday life, but things that characterize worldly life in opposition to God. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, greed, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language. He's, clo- he's quoting Colossians 3 there. And when these things, or when things that fall into these categories are the center of a person's life, their lives are lived in opposition to God and his will. They're considered enemies. Many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. And Paul isn't just saying, oh, you might run into people like this. He's not saying some live as enemies to the cross of Christ. He says many live as enemies to the cross of Christ. It's not an if you run into people like this, it's a when you run into people like this. And their path doesn't end with the promise of something incredible. Paul says their destiny is destruction. And it can be easy for us to think, well, I would never walk down that path. I can look at that and look at that list and say, no, 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 no. No, I I get that. I can look at that and I can say, that's bad. But here's the reality is that's the easy path. That's the path that requires no effort. That's the path that requires no restraint. It's easy to give in to anger. Someone does something to you and you're angry with them. It's easy to give in to anger. Requires no restraint, requires no effort. It is difficult to show grace when you have been wronged. That requires restraint. And so we can't fall into that trap of looking at that list in Colossians 3 and saying, no, I'm not worried about that. I know that's bad because... That's easy. And so Paul is giving a warning about that lifestyle, and he's giving a reminder of where that lifestyle leads. Because again, it can be easy to look at people who live that way and say, man, they're living the good life. They do what they want, they do it when they want, and they're not worried about the consequences. But that's not the life we've been called to as followers of Christ. So Paul gives this warning, but he also provides two solutions to this problem. First solution is found in the unity of Christian community. It says, join together in following my example. And then a little bit later, he says, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. Companionship and accountability are invaluable resources when pursuing a goal. This is true in academics. This is true in athletics. And it's true in following Christ, in pursuing the Christian life. Isolation, the opposite of that, is the enemy of progress in pursuing Christ. I'm going to say that sentence to you again. Isolation 
is the enemy of progress in pursuing Christ. Isolation is one of Satan's favorite tools to use to get someone off track. Isolation provides absolutely no opportunity for encouragement or accountability. But when you join together with those of like mind, there's a good chance that someone maybe has overcome a struggle that you're dealing with right now. There's a good chance that you might meet people that can spur you on in your pursuit of Christ. And when we're surrounded by fellow believers, when we place ourselves in those situations, when we join together, the tug of those earthly things, that easy path, it becomes so much weaker. That tug, you don't feel it as much when you're surrounded by others of like mind. And so Paul's second solution then stems from a sense of community. He encourages the Philippians to to be reminded that their citizenship is in heaven. And so citizenship was an incredibly important and highly valued thing in the Roman world. Being a Roman citizen provided you with certain rights. It provided you with certain privileges. And we actually see an example of Paul using the rights and privileges of a Roman citizen to keep himself from getting into some pretty big trouble in in Acts 22. He's about to basically be punished without trial, and he says, wait, 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 wait. I'm a Roman citizen, and therefore I have the right to a trial. And so it it was a valuable thing. Being a citizen was a valuable thing. But here Paul's saying that a believer's ultimate loyalty, that a believer's ultimate citizenship is in heaven. And that as believers, we should conduct ourselves in a way fitting for the citizens of heaven. Even if that's in contrast to, because it will be, even if that's in contrast to the way that the world around us lives. And it brings to mind for me personally the the story of Daniel, who was relocated to Babylon following Babylon's conquering of Judah. Daniel was pressured to adapt his beliefs, his behaviors to match the culture that he was living in. But Daniel never lost sight of his identity as a Jew and continued to conduct himself as a citizen of Judah. And God used him in incredible ways. Living the the Christian life uh, in in the Roman world wasn't much different from what what Daniel was, was living in, in that there were extreme pressures to adapt. And living a life of a Christian in the modern world is not that much different. We need to constantly remind ourselves where our allegiance is, where our identity lies, and why it lies there. Citizens of heaven follow the one true God who is unchanging, who created everything. Citizens of heaven have the promise of a Savior who will return to establish his kingdom. Citizens of heaven have the promise of an eternal future with God absent from the pains and the temptations and just all of the struggles that come with living in a fallen world. Our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. That is the promise. That's the goal. That's what's at the end of the race. And that's what we're striving towards. Whereas citizens of the world, 
They follow the ever-changing whims of their desires. Citizens of the world have the promise of destruction and eternal separation from God. And so we need to constantly remind ourselves where our loyalty lies, where our citizenship is, and that is in heaven. And so Paul's warnings and encouragements here should strike home for all of us, not just our graduating high school students. Because they're true and applicable whether you're graduating from high school, whether you've just graduated from college, or you're changing jobs, or you're retiring, or you're moving from elementary school to middle school, or from first grade to second grade. Regardless of your stage in life, if you've placed your faith in Jesus, you are running the race. You started the race. And you have a common goal that you're working towards with everyone else that's made that decision. And you have a shared promise of an eternal reward at the end. The end of that path that starts with just placing your faith in Jesus Christ, in his life, in his death, in his resurrection. And so again, graduates, my encouragement to you today stems from that idea. Continue on the path you've started down in following Christ. Again, focused on the promise ahead, keeping your eye on the prize. God has prepared each and every one of you uniquely to face the hurdles, the obstacles that will come. And as you move into the next phase of life, I encourage you to remain connected with fellow believers, to provide accountability and to be held accountable, to provide encouragement and to be encouraged. And to know, again, that you have a family of believers right here who have invested in you for years and they aren't just disappearing from your lives. And something I like to do each year um, is to bring our graduates up and to, to not only recognize them, but to let their church family know what is going on with them next. Where are they going to be? How can we be praying for them? How can we continue to be that group that joins together with them? So graduates, um, this is going to be easy. I'm not even going to make you talk. I'm just going to ask you to come up and stand. <clears throat> See if you can do alphabetical order by last name. <laughs> Your final test. Close. Is it- <laughs> <laughs> All right. So we have a little slideshow again. I said that we're going to have some uh, some current pictures and some really great pictures from when they were younger, uh, just to let you guys kind of know. Uh, What's next for them? So we have Miss Amber Bailey here. Excellent. Amber is uh, graduating from Byron High School, and you're going to be attending RCTC in the fall to pursue nursing, correct? Okay. And then we have Miss Isabel Christensen. Can you tell they're related? I don't know. I was looking at those two pictures thinking, it seems like there might be a, a common theme here. So Belle is graduating from Mayo High School, which is a a very good place to graduate from, I must say. She's also attending RCTC. We have Mr. Ryan Kern. All children left unattended will be towed at owner's expense. Very good. We need to get one of those here. Um, Ryan is graduating from Lampo Academy and is going to continue pursuing sales and market career development. Ryan is also our resident overachiever because he's graduating a year early. Um, 
Next up, we have Mr. Evan Kluth, who's graduating from Schaefer Academy. Which one's the current one? Which one's the... Uh, and he's attending Liberty University in Lynchburg, Virginia this coming year. And Miss Claire Reynolds, graduating from John Marshall High School. That's okay. Um, and she will be attending Word of Life Bible Institute in New York, right? Is that correct? Yes. I think it's correct. I put it up there. So, um, And I also next up is uh, Matthew Rebo. He wasn't able to be with us this morning, but he's also graduating from John Marshall, and he'll be attending University of Minnesota Duluth. Uh, and then finally, we have Mr. Michael Ulbricht. He is homeschooled, graduated from there earlier this, uh, or I guess last month, and you are attending University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire, right? Yes, sir. Awesome. So here are, uh, we also have Kate Wass is also graduating. I don't have pictures for her, but um, we'll also be praying for her as well. So one thing, again, I also like to do is pray for our students, our graduates, as they, um, as they move on to what's next in life. And so I've had input into each of their lives, um, but my input pales in comparison to the input their parents have had in their lives as they've grown, as they've grown in their relationship with, with Christ. So I'd like to invite um, parents up to, um, to pray with our, our students as well. Again, this is low pressure. We're just going to lay hands upon our, our graduates. So come on up, parents. Um, and something that I also like to do is to provide a picture of um, this community that we talk about here at Berean, the fact that we join together and that there are people who've invested in these students for years. And so um, if you have been one of the middle school or high school leaders in the lives of these students, uh, present or past, I'd like to invite you up as well. And if you are an Awana leader for one of these students, I would like to invite you up as well. If you are a children's church worker, for one of these students, come on up. What am I forgetting? Sunday school. You're a Sunday school leader, teacher for one of these students. Come on up. And here's the one I'm most interested in. If any of you held one of these students in the nursery, I'd like for you to come up. I don't, I don't know if there's anyone. Oh, we do have one. <laughs> How cool is that, though? <laughs> and this is a picture of... I want you guys to, to take a second and just look around and see the people who have invested in you, who care for you, and again, who aren't going to just disappear. We will continue to be here for you. Um, and so I'd like to, to lead us in a prayer and worship team. If you can somehow make your way through this, I'd like to invite you up as well to, to close us after we, after we pray. So God, I... I do thank you for each and every one of these graduating high school students and who you've made them to be. Um, Lord, I, I pray for what you have in store for them. pray that you continue to prepare them for the hurdles yet to come. Um, and I pray for each of them that you would use them in, in a mighty way for your kingdom. That not only would you grow them, but you would use them to grow others. And so we pray that you would protect them, that you continue to nurture them, and remind them day in and day out of just what they strive towards, that incredible promise of an eternity with you, Lord, that you have given us who believe in Jesus because of your great love. Lord, it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.
So graduates, with the same sentiment that Paul had for his church, I'm going to leave you with Philippians 4, verse 1. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm in the Lord. 
in this way, dear friends. Go now in peace.